As we come to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, to pray with me. Um, Father in heaven, um, you grant us grace through your word. That means that as we read it and meditate upon it, you enable us to know you and to walk with you. And so I pray that your word would have its perfect work in us this morning to humble us that we might walk with you, not trusting in ourselves, but only in Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Judges and chapter 8. Old Testament book, Judges chapter 8, please. Now, since you're well rested, and we have an extra hour, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's long and a bit detailed. Um, so hang in there. If you lose track, just, just repent and pick it back up again. So as we're going, uh, as we're going through it, so it's, it's rather long and detailed about some battles and that sort of thing. But please listen as you can. This is the word of the Lord, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, the hymn there is Gideon, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiazar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunia already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jagbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled. And he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? 
And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. And then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, uh, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Uh, Jerubal, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, by the way, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the uh, Byersites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And then we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Whew. All right. Uh, remember where we are with judges, historically, so we can get this. Uh, remember that uh, the Israelites were a family and a nation, and they had been in Egypt enslaved. Moses came, delivered them. They spent a generation wandering in the wilderness and then entered the land that God was to give them. And Joshua, as did Moses, but Joshua, after him, commanded the people to, uh, that they were to um, um, uh, drive out all the nations that lived there, all the peoples that lived there, because the land was now theirs. And while that may seem, sound cruel and barbaric to us, remember that God was judging the people for being idolaters. And he was saying to the people of Israel, you need to drive them all out because if you don't, if you live, live among them, you're likely then to adopt the gods that they worship. And so uh, that will be your downfall. And so drive them, drive them out. 
But they didn't. For various reasons, none of them humane, but for various reasons, they didn't drive them out. And so God says, all right, the nations that are here now, I will use to test you and to train you. To test you to see what's in your heart, to see if you'll really obey me. And to train you uh, to follow after me, to deal with these nations, to war after them and to drive them out as I commanded you to do. Now, we understand that in spiritual terms. We understand that there are enemies of our souls that exist outside and within. And that God leaves these enemies in such a way to test us, to see what's in our hearts. And also to teach us then war. That is to teach us how to spiritually fight so that we can follow after him in faith and in, and in holiness. And so that's the, the scene. That's the situation. And don't forget the cycle that we're seeing in Judges as well. Remember that it begins with the people of Israel Forgetting God. And when it says they forgot him, it means they did not act according to what they knew about God. So they forgot him and they became idolaters. They did become those who adopted the gods of the nations around them, the people around them. And then God would become righteously angry and he would discipline them. And in his discipline, he would send another group of people, a nation or a a people to come after them and, and capture them, enslave them essentially. And then the people would live in that for a while and their misery, in their misery, they would cry out to God, sometimes in repentance, sometimes just in misery. And God would hear them and in his gracious mercy would come and send a judge, this deliverer, who would deliver them from these oppressors. And then as long as the judge lived, then there was peace. As soon as the judge died, this cycle began again. And as we go through Judges, what becomes increasingly clear is that the depravity increases as well. So what are we to get from all of this? Well, as we read through Judges, one of the amazing things is at the end of the book, the nation still exists. The end of Judges, the nation still exists. If you're reading from Genesis and you get to Judges uh, and you get to this point and maybe a little later in Judges, you're probably going to be thinking, this is it. There's no more Israel after this. Uh, and yet when we get to the end, there is. In fact, you get to the end of the Old Testament, you might, you might read all the way through and think, I can't believe that Israel still is even after all of this. But Israel still is. Why? Because God is faithful. His people may not be faithful. But God is always faithful. He had made a promise That one would come who would bring redemption. And that one would be Jesus. And that one would come through this nation. And and, and so this nation had to exist and continue. And so by the time we get to the New Testament and Matthew and we read the genealogy of Jesus, we see, oh yes, God was faithful through all those generations to keep this people a people so that his Messiah could indeed come from them. Just like he had promised, God is always, always faithful. To his promise, even if we are not. That's good news to us. Now, the lesson that we've been learning from uh, Gideon, most particularly, is that the way that we fight is by being wholly dependent upon God. The way that we fight is being wholly dependent upon God. I, when I was younger, uh, 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 older pastor, 
took me aside and said, remember, there's only one lesson that you preach. And I said, what's that? And he said, dependence. It's always the lesson we preach. It's always the lessons God teaching to us to be dependent upon him. And, and this older friend of mine said to me, now remember, we have to keep learning it. He said, you will learn this lesson and you will preach this lesson until the day you die. To be dependent upon God because there's something for whatever in us that, that causes us to stray from trusting him and being utterly dependent upon him. And we have a tendency to trust ourselves and to trust others. And he says we always have to be coming back to this message of dependence. That's particularly what God is teaching us through the Gideon. You remember the situation. That God comes to Gideon and Gideon's uh, afraid because the Midianites are the oppressors. And the Midianites are these, this band of bandits and they're ruthless and they come and, and they take everything from the Israelites who are living in the land. And so the people are afraid and we find Gideon threshing his grain in the wine press, which means he was so afraid that he couldn't thresh his grain where he should have been threshing it outside. But he was hiding in the wine press to do this because he was afraid if the Midianites had seen him, they would take everything from him and he wouldn't have anything. And so he was there. And, and so this Fearful, this man filled with fear is the one to whom the angel of the Lord comes and refers to him as this great man of valor. And I'm sure he scratched his head at that one. But what the angel of the Lord would teach Gideon, teach us, is that dependence upon God always brings this victory. And so what... God did with Gideon, you remember, is Gideon had 32,000 men and he was going to go up against an army, we read in this passage, of 135,000. And even that didn't look good, but God shrunk Gideon's army down to 300. And you say, well, but, but nobody of 300 could beat 135,000. And God says, that's the point. That's what I want you to see. Dependent upon me, 300 really can beat 135,000. So trust me, won't you? If you trust yourself, you can have a million and lose to 135,000. But with 300, you can win dependent upon me. Now that was the point, of course, in chapter 7 and verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many uh, for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. That's the kiss of death. And so, whittles the army down so that everybody can see dependence on the Lord brings this victory. The apostle would put it that power is perfected in weakness. Uh, the proverb would be that God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. What does all that mean? Well, the proud person says, I can do it. The humble person says, I can't. And so the person who goes to God saying, I can't, I need your help. He says, oh, here's grace. The person who's proud will never go. The person who's proud will never go to God. He'll just try to figure it out, try to work it out, try to gut it out. And there's no grace there. And so the lesson, weakness. Now, we don't have to do anything to make ourselves weak. The point of it is that we are weak and simply recognize our weakness, our creatureliness, even our sinfulness, and that we need God. 
And so recognizing that, blessed are the poor in spirit, as Jesus put it, recognizing that uh, should give us the motivation, the impetus to go to God and say, please help me. That's the point of it. That's the point of it. But now in this particular passage, we're taking up the end of this story that, that seems rather quite different in some ways uh, than the beginning. But before we get there, a couple of things to say. Um, I've mentioned this before when we uh, began Judges, but it's really helpful to see it now. And that is that narrative passages are very different, difficult to interpret. Teaching passages can give us some uh, difficulties as well. But at least we know there's a point here that we're getting to and the passage is actually teaching. In a narrative passage, we always have these questions. What's this really saying? Uh, I read this and I think, well, should I do that like Gideon did it? Or or maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe that's the point. Uh, how does this really uh, apply? How does this really apply uh, to us? Uh, to help myself, I, I, I knew that I had preached through this passage in 1995, before some of you were born. Uh, but I didn't have a cassette player, so I couldn't listen. I, I did have some notes, and I, it was helpful to see I said exactly the same thing as I introduced this passage in, 19, in 1995. Um, but to help us, there's a second point to make. I'll make it like this. Uh, I'm really grateful that we have a number of, of, uh, of folks on our staff who are taking seminary courses because that way I can just talk to them, ask them what they're learning and they can tell me and it saves me a lot of time and effort to keep up with what's, what's going on. Uh, and uh, I really like the tidbits that I get from the professor's classes. And, and so Ryan Randolph uh, shared this with me uh, some time ago. And he said, my professor said that if you're reading a passage of scripture and there's a sinner in it, then you need to realize uh, it's me. And if you're reading a passage and there's two sinners in it, and I'm thinking this would be great, one's me, one's you. Uh, my professor said, if you're reading a passage of scripture and two sinners... They're both me. <laughs> and so what we have here is a passage with at least three sinners. And they're all me. And they're all you. That a great principle when we're reading scripture is to point the finger inward, not outward. Because when we point the finger inward, then we're like the tax collector in the parable I read a few minutes ago. Uh, the tax collector was able to, to point the finger inward and see that he was, as he put it, a sinner, or as in some earlier translations, the sinner. And he was able to say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the scripture says that he went home justified, that God had accepted him, received him. Not on the basis of anything he had done, not on the basis of self-trust, but on the basis of self-denial and God-trust. And he saw himself and because the finger was pointed. The Pharisee was pointing his finger outward and said exactly what we say when we read a passage of scripture that has a sinner in it. And we see somebody else and we say, I'm not like that guy. And so as we read this, every sinner's me. Every sinner's you. And we are to find ourselves in it, not 
not someone else. And again, that's the express purpose of this. Uh, the problem that we'll find here is pride, and, and that's exactly the problem that God wants to eradicate from the Israelites through all of this life of Gideon. So, three situations. First one's this one, comes in the first three verses. And it deals with uh, the men of Ephraim, or the Ephraimites. And their pride is, is exposed in the sense that they uh, come to Gideon and they said, why didn't you include us earlier? Now, well, the situation is this. That they're the mightiest of all the tribes. And Gideon's been fighting battles with the Midianites. And he doesn't call upon the Ephraimites until, sounds like some sort of insect, uh, the Ephraimites until the very end. So, so Gideon takes his 300 men that he has and he goes against all these tens of thousands of the Midianites. And in a miraculous way, he routes them. Some of them get away and they start to run. And as they start to run, some of them are going through the country of Ephraim. And so Gideon comes to the Ephraimites. You can see this at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter 7. And, and he gets the Ephraimites and he says, hey, could you, could you stop them? You know, contain them. And so they do because it's no big deal because they're really strong and mighty. In fact, in the doing of it, they capture two very important princes. And they begin to scratch their head and they say to Gideon, well, we're the best. Why didn't you call upon us earlier? And they're rather offended that they weren't consulted and called upon and used. In fact, they're so offended that they, they went after him. They accused him fiercely. I mean, they're really hot. They're really mad. And, and so then, then Gideon um, says to them, well, you're so much greater than everybody else. This would have been, this would have been an insult in a sense for me to ask you to come and, and fight in the beginning. And, and after all, uh, look what you did. You, you got the big gain. You captured the two princes. Way to go. And, and we're just, I'm just from a little group. You're a big group. How can I even approach you? Well, the question we ask is, what do we do with that? Was Gideon being humble? Was Gideon being diplomatic? Or was Gideon appealing to their pride? I don't know. I don't know. All I do know is I can be like the Ephraimites. I can think I'm all that. And when I don't get consulted or asked to be involved, right? We can all be that way. They get offended. They got offended. That's what happened. Second situation. Gideon's uh, moving along with his, his, his 300 men and they go through this particular area of Succoth and he asks the men uh, there to, to give them some food. He says, everybody that's coming after me is hungry. We've been fighting a battle for you. We're all part of the same team. We're all Israelites. So would you feed us? And they say no. And the reason that they give is, is because on the one hand, they're kind of afraid they, they looked down the road and they said, you haven't really won one yet. I mean, it's not over yet. And so what happens in a sense if we feed you and, and then you go up against these kings who, who were they, Zeba and Zalmunna, and they defeat you. And then they learned we helped you. <laughs> then we're in trouble. So it's too early for us to help you. So we're not, we're not going to do that. 
There's a sense, too, that if I'm Gideon, I'm going to say, wait a minute, haven't you been following the news? Don't you understand that these 300 guys that are with me just defeated tens of thousands of Midianites? There's just a few left. Why do you think God would abandon us now? Why, 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 why are you worried about it? I mean, I mean, look what God has done. And they're thinking, oh, I think we know better than God. I think we know better than you. I think you're going to fail. At least the potential's there. So we're not ready to get involved yet. Uh, Our pride, our wisdom says, we're going to stay away. Then that really gets Gideon. So much so that he says, all right, after we capture these guys, when I come back, I'm going to go out in the field and get some uh, switches uh, with briars in them and come back and teach you a lesson. Uh, And you go, whoa, Gideon, was that the right thing to do? I mean, they're your people. Uh, But but yet we realize that there are other times when the Israelites were going through lands and the people who occupied the lands didn't feed the Israelites and God got really upset with them and destroyed them. But these are Israelites. Is that what he's supposed to do? Was that okay? And then he goes down to Penuel and the same thing happens there. And so he says, all right, when we get back, we're going to knock over your tower. Uh... Must have been a pretty important tower. Is that right to do? I don't know. know. Well, well then, um, so so then Gideon moves on and he's going to try to find Ziba and Zalmunna in the in the verses that that follow, and he captures them. And uh, once he captures them, then he says, uh, I've got to go back. I've got some work to do in Succoth and Penuel. And so he goes back there and, and he, he gets uh, an inventory of all the important people there. And he goes to them uh, and, and he says, uh, I got them. So now let me teach you a lesson. And so he goes out and he gets the switches and he comes back and gets them. And then he goes to Penuel and he knocks down the tower. And he kills all the men. And you go, okay. Was that okay? I mean, mean, he was defending the honor of his men in some way, I suppose. But that just seems a little over the top. It doesn't seem like the Gideon that was afraid and and God came and strengthened and won the battle. I I don't know how, how to really understand that. And then he gets Ziba, or Ziba, and Zalmunna, uh, these kings... And, and he asks them this question in verse uh, 18. He says, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Fascinating question. Because they were dead. It's not like they're going to say, well, they're home. I mean, he killed them at Tabor. And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of the king. Then verse 19, a dramatic statement. And Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And all of a sudden, you go, this is personal. Something really deep here with Gideon. You you can tell uh, the movement that he was after. And you begin to wonder, had Gideon traded in the glory of God and the good of the kingdom for his own personal vengeance? Or maybe this was just honorable. He was honoring his, excuse excuse me, his brothers, uh, the Sons of his mother. So maybe it was a good thing. You can spin that either way. You could think that, that through. And so then he says to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. And you go, well, why are you doing that? He's just a kid. 
Well, maybe he was doing that because it was a great dishonor for a king to get killed by a young man, by a, by a mere boy. Word of that gets around. It really destroys your reputation, I suppose. But the kid says, ah, I can't do that. And we're going, Phew. saved a lot of counseling later in his life. Ah, that's good. Way to go, buddy. And, and then, then the, the kings say to Gideon what we're thinking. Hey, if you want him killed, then do it yourself, man. You, and so he does. And, and we go, was, was that okay? Uh, I don't know. Then verse 22. says, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But he hadn't saved them. God had saved them. So all of a sudden we go, oh, that's not right. But then verse 23 says, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And I say, oh, finally something to preach. Right? I can, I can do something with this. That's really helpful. That really, that really makes sense. But then Gideon goes and acts like a king. He gets the spoil of war. He takes all these wives. He has all these kids. Um, he, he, he even has a concubine that's a Canaanite concubine who's from Shechem. And, and he names uh, their son Abimelech, which means my father is king. Uh, and then this ephod. You're going, what's that? Well, an ephod is part of the dress that the priest would wear in um, uh, observing, administering the functions of of the high priest in Israel. Um, And it was a vest, and it was worn under the breastplate, and uh, it uh, it had uh, beautiful cloth. Had two stones, one on each shoulder. Uh, and the six tribes were named on one stone, six tribes on another, on another. And, and, and it was this priestly garment. And so oftentimes when the kings, for instance, David would want to inquire of the Lord, he would say, bring the ephod. And he would inquire of the Lord. And the reason he would say that was because the breastplate was over the ephod. And this was another piece of, of, uh, of the high priest's garments. And it was more elaborate and it had 12 stones, and each stone had a name of a tribe of Israel, so that when the high priest would go into the presence of the Lord, he was representing all of the people. But also there were a couple of pouches or pockets in it, and in the pockets with a urim and the thummim, these uh, ways to determine the will of God. And so this ephod became a snare to them, and we don't know exactly how it became a snare to them, although we realize it diverted worship away from God somehow how it diverted worship away from God. Did it mean that, that Gideon was getting all the glory? Did it mean that, that, the, that, that, that someone else was or the people's worship was diverted? We don't know exactly what was taking place, but we know that it was a snare to the people and a snare to Gideon and his family as well. And we're just kind of dressing our heads going, this is ending badly. It started out so wonderfully well when, when Gideon was, was weak and he knew it and, and God was, was defeating the enemy and, and now I just, just don't like this. And then right about the time we're ready to throw Gideon under the bus, we read verse 35 and it says, And they did not show steadfast love to the family of uh, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And we're going, what? Yeah, but it seems like 
But yet they were still supposed to honor him. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that he's listed with all the great people of faith Gideon is. And it's just, just messy. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, don't we pay you to do this? Aren't you supposed to figure these things out for us and play this out to us? I'm doing the best I can. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a passage I could spin every which way if I wanted to. And I'm trying to think now, how is it that we really understand? How is it that we really understand this? And I suppose to earn my keep, I'll say this. That pride is a snare to us all. We don't think we're like the Ephraimites who are prideful to get our feelings hurt when we're not included or not consulted or our expertise is not valued. But we are. We don't want to be like the men of Succoth and Penuel who are waiting to see the end result before we jump in. We don't want to be people who are unwilling to risk it for the sake of the whole community. We don't want to think of ourselves as people who jump out or people who be on the outside looking in, just waiting for the group to fail because if they do, then I didn't. We don't want to think of ourselves like that. We don't want to think of ourselves as being self-protected. We don't want to think of ourselves as, as those who who can't join in. We don't want to think of ourselves who in our pride have a better plan to protect ourselves because we can't trust God to protect ourselves. We we don't want to be like that. And so we don't want to be like the men of Succoth and Penuel. But we are. We don't want to be like Gideon and somehow start out in weakness, thus the strength of God, and then seem like something's changed. And we exert our own strength and our own power. We don't want to think of ourselves like that. But we are. Situation happened almost 25 years ago now that is very profound and significant in my own life. I may have shared this story before, and if I have, I'm not particularly sorry because I think it fits here, but you may recall it, I don't know. But in 1995, a pastor friend committed suicide. And uh, there were some extenuating circumstances. He had had an accident. We could see it. And he was a dear man, trusted Jesus in so many ways. And I, I trust he's in glory with the Lord. But, but if there was a pastor who... We all admired it. it was this guy. Those of us in our own peer group at the time um, all would say that he was the best preacher. He was the best scholar, pastored the best church. And I know this will be hard to believe. He was better looking than the rest of us as well. And if you wanted to build a statue that looked like the perfect pastor and indeed was, it would be this guy, honestly. And we were all sitting around one day, um, grieving. 
after his funeral. And uh, one of the guys in our group who was probably maybe closest to him, far closer to him than I was, said, you know, guys, when I heard about the suicide, I had this thought. And the thought was, I knew I was better than him. And it just sucked the air out of the room just like it did now. And his point was, we are all prideful. And though we loved this friend, genuinely, it revealed all of our hearts in some way. And that's just true for us as, as human beings. We, we, we all want to think that we're better than. Just like the Pharisee wanted to say he was better than. And yet all of us need to sit back and realize we're just like the guy, our dear friend. Now there is one who's better than. There, there is one who is the one who is, who is best. And he's the one you see we all have to be focused upon. Because if we're not, then we'll die. I mean, the only reason we can sit in the same room together is to realize that we are not better than the other, but yet we can come together in community, come to a table together, in fact, because we all look to the one who is better than. The one who is perfectly humble, the one who came, who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The one, uh, Tyler led us in a profession of faith this morning from Philippians in chapter 2, that, that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's amazing. I am not in the form of God, but I count equality with God a thing to be grasped all the time. And I think I can really do it. And that's our sin. But Jesus, who really could grasp it, had the right to grasp it, didn't. But he emptied himself, becoming like us in human form, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, you see. He's the perfect one. He's the one in whom, in whom we trust. He came and was sinless. He, he said, he said it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The author of Hebrews says that he was made just like us in every way, yet without sin. And the apostle says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that's a sentence. You knew no sin. Jesus became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. He's the better one. He's the one in whom we, in whom we trust. And you might say, well, how do we know that? Well, because he gave us a sign and a seal. 
we call it a sacrament, the Lord's Supper, uh, a sign and a seal. A sign that points to something and a seal that says this is authentic, meaning what this sign signifies is really true. You can trust it. And so when you come to this table, in one sense, we're looking at the gospel. We're looking of, uh, of what is really true. And we know behind this sign is the seal of God saying this is authentic. So what's behind this sign is really the power of God to convince us. Behind this sign is the power of God to bring us assurance. And so we know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that he's the better one. Not us, but him. We're declaring that we're utterly dependent Upon him and not ourselves. We're declaring that he took the guilt of our sin so that we might be forgiven and we might receive his righteousness and therefore live. Some of my reading this week on some various matters, I came across a guy that said at his worship service some weeks ago, his pastor at the table read a series of questions uh, to which each person answered aloud before coming to the table. I read these and I said, we need to do that. So I'm going to read these questions. After each one, I'd like you to respond, if you can, with yes. And I'd like you to say it out loud. You don't have to say it real loud. We're Presbyterians. But if you're a Baptist, you can say it real loud if you want to. If you're Assembly of God, go for it. If you're Episcopalian, you can do it under your hand. However, wherever you come from, all right? Have you sinned against the Lord this week? Yes. Have you gone astray from his word? Yes. Have you done that which is wrong in his sight? Yes. But is God willing to forgive you again? Yes. Did Jesus pay the penalty of your sin in full? Yes. Do you now repent of your sins and reaffirm your trust in the finished work of Christ, which is your righteousness? Yes. He's the better one. He's the one we all place our trust into. This one Jesus. Because we're all like the Ephraimites. We're all like the men of Succoth and Penuel. We're all like Gideon. We're all sinners. We need to be saved by the grace of God. What enables us, with whatever differences we may have, whatever commonalities we may have, to sit in the same room together in worship, come to the same table together is because we know that. Though we have been unfaithful, God is always faithful. 
faithful to forgive, faithful to restore. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table, please, I pray, set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that we'll know that we're in the very presence of this one who is better. This one who is perfect. This one in whom we place our trust. And I pray that at this table, because it's your sign, it's the way you've said to understand this gospel and to come. And you'll use it in a way that our faith will be strengthened. Our union with you will be assured. And our union with each other will be strengthened as well. So please, I pray, do this work among us to your glory and the blessing of your church. This I pray in Jesus' name.